0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're in Matthew chapter 18 as we continue in our sermon series on parables, how Jesus told stories to shape our minds. And we've been learning this summer that parables are short stories that answer the big questions of life. In these parables, we've seen Jesus answer questions like, how can I know God? How can I find God even when God seems to be hidden? How can I be made right with God? How can I move closer to God? And today, Jesus talks about a very practical thing. He talks about how we handle conflict. How do we handle conflict amongst brothers and sisters in the church? So I want to pray for us quickly. Usually I read the scripture first, but I'm going to read a little and then talk a little as we go through the text together. So let me pray for our time together as we get started digging into God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have preserved it, lo, these many millennia. Surely one of the reasons you preserved it is because we need this word. And I thank you for how practical and how relevant it is. And I pray that you would show us now how we should handle conflict within the church. So many of us bring so many things from our past to this time that I can't possibly anticipate everything, but Holy Spirit, I pray that you would meet people where they are and that you would use your word to do the work that only you can do in the lives of your people. And I ask that you'd be willing to do this even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As people come to join Redeemer Church and they come here and they're interested in joining as members, I always tell them, That if you come here and get plugged in the way that I hope you get here and get plugged in, that you're in a community group, that you're doing life together with the other members of this church, that you really are connected in a real way. If you come here and you get plugged in the way that I hope that you will, then it's not a matter of if somebody's going to sin against you, it's just a matter of when. Now, why would I say that? Perhaps there are better marketing pitches to join a church. Maybe that's why your church is so small, right? Well, I think it's important that we're honest with one another. the first vow we take when we join this church is that we admit that we are sinners, right? And even after we accept the Lord Jesus as our Savior and we become a new creation in Christ, we still have vestiges traces of that old person that we were the bible calls it the flesh that wars within us against the spirit and if that's true then as we live life together as iron sharpens iron as we help each other and walk with each other in this road down this path of becoming more and more like christ if we get close to each other we're going to sin against each other And Jesus is just so honest about that. And he deals with that issue very specifically. So it's important not just to be open and honest and to set expectations, but it's also important for us to know how to handle it when it happens. So I don't know what teaching you've heard about this in the past. I want to spend some time in the Word with you. And I hope you'll have an open mind as we come and we hear the words of Jesus. In Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, thank you, Lord, for how practical this is, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now notice a couple of things about what Jesus is saying. He says, if your brother sins against you, he's talking about relationships between fellow believers. He's speaking to the disciples here. So he's talking about this context within the church. I think these things have application outside the church, but it is certainly the way we should do life in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says, if your brother sins against you, Let's be clear about what sin is and what it is not, okay? Sin is when we do things that God tells us not to do, or if we fail to do something God tells us to do, and that's defined in the Word of God, right? So if a brother sins against you, they violated something in this book. Now, why am I making a big deal about that? Because it's not just if your brother irritates you, right? You know, your pet peeve is not necessarily a sin. It's not just if somebody doesn't live life the way I would prefer that they live life. That if we're going to go and talk to one another, we're talking about violations of the Word of God. If your brother sins against you, then go and talk with them just between the two of you. Go toward that person and talk to them. Boy, we're not good at that in the church, are we? We tend to do just the opposite. Instead of going toward them, we withdraw from that person. And instead of talking just between the two of you, we go to two or three others, and we start saying, can you believe how awful Hannah Grace is? Let me tell you what she did. It's just the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do. And I want to be very clear that if you go to two or three other people first, and you begin to say things that are not true because you haven't clarified an understanding, you haven't asked good questions about what happened, and you say things that are not true, that's called slander. And that's a violation of God's word. But if you go to two or three other people, and even if everything you say is the gospel truth, that's called gossip. And it is still a violation of God's word. Jesus says we go directly to that person and we talk with them about it. Now, he goes on, look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there is a point we get other people involved if we've already gone to that person directly. Now, of course, there are exceptions. There are so many exceptions. Lawyers have such trouble with this passage of Scripture because you don't want to send somebody one-on-one to an abusive situation. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do, right? Right? But if we've been in the usual situation to the person one-on-one, they don't respond, then we do get one or two other people involved. Notice that Jesus wants us to be persistent in going to a brother or sister, right? That we don't give up after one time, just the two of us talking. That we want to give time for the Holy Spirit to work. That we want to go more than one time. That the second time we want to take one or two others. Maybe you are missing something and the other one or two will help you understand that. Maybe they're missing something and these other ones can help, Maybe you're missing each other in the communication, and these other folks can help. But well, what if that doesn't work? What about verse 17? Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Let me talk about that for a moment. You may have noticed that in our order of worship, we don't have a time that we have people stand up and say, hey, let me tell you about somebody who hasn't been doing what they're supposed to do, and they're not admitting it, right? We don't have that in our order of worship. So how do you do that in this place? Well, we would ask you that you come to the church leadership, that you come to those representatives that Jesus talks about uh, in the verses that follow this. And we're glad to get involved in the situation and to get the church community involved in the situation. We'll see what that looks like when we get to the end of the parable that Jesus is going to tell in just a minute. So just remember, verse 17, we'll see it in scene 3 of this parable of how what that can look like and how that plays out. There's so many more things I want to say About Matthew 18 that I can't. If you'd like to know more, I'd love to answer questions about what it looks like here at our church. We'd love to have you come to Redeemer 101, which is a way you get more information about our church. We talk about these verses. Redeemer, there's a recording of Redeemer 101 on our website. If you go to the front page, there's a link, there's a part that says classes under the classes tab. You can click on Redeemer 101 and find out more. But I want to move on here and ask this question. What if someone approaches you? We've said if you've been sinned against, go to the person. What if someone approaches you about a way you've sinned against them? I think by implication, Jesus would would say to us, "You, you need to listen to that person. You need to take time to consider what they say. If they're wrong, then you at least had a good season of reflection and self-examination, which is good. And if they're right, then what a blessing that they loved us enough to have a hard conversation with us for our good so that we don't go on sinning in that way. I think Jesus would say, based on this, don't hesitate to confess sin, to say, you were right, I was wrong. I think he would say, don't hesitate to ask for forgiveness. And as we said before, this is a good model for work or for school or for home, but amongst believers, it is the way Jesus says to handle conflict, and this is the way we want to handle conflict here at Redeemer Church. Now, in verse 21, Peter asks a really good question, right? He says, okay, Jesus, if this process works, if I go to the person, they apologize, and then I've won my brother, but then they keep sinning against me, they keep doing it again and again, How many times do I have to forgive my brother? You see it there in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? You see, this was a debated topic in the people of God at that day. And most rabbis said that you should forgive people three times. That after they've sinned against you three times and you've forgiven them, then after that, you can just cut them off. And so Peter's being very generous, right? He's saying, Jesus, I know you're full of mercy and grace, and so how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Two and a half times, what other people would do if you're keeping count, right? Yes, Peter thinks he's being very generous. And Jesus answers. And listen to what he says there. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Or your translation may say 77 times. So is Jesus saying that on, on offense number 78 or offense number 491, then you don't have to forgive anymore? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we should forgive so many times and so consistently that it becomes a habit for us. It becomes a, a way of life for us. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Do we just keep letting people take advantage of us? It's the natural question that follows. And then Jesus tells this parable. Good, I'm glad you're getting to the parable since this is a certain series on parables. But it's important that we see the context in which Jesus tells this parable. And so we're wondering, do we just let people take advantage of us? And Jesus tells an incredible parable. This is one of my favorites. I want to look at it in three scenes. Look at scene one, beginning in verse 23. Jesus said, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. Your translation may say, have mercy on me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Notice a couple of things about what's going on here. Notice that the king moves toward those that he's in a relationship with, right? He initiates with them those he's in a relationship with. And I keep saying those he's in a relationship with. You understand that Jesus is not just talking about money or loans right here, right? It's just like the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's using that as a metaphor for our sin and the way that we sin against one another and how we're going to care for our relationship with one another, how we're going to treat one another. And notice that the king initiates with those who have offended him, which is exactly what Jesus just said to do in verse 15. He's illustrating that, right? And he invites that person into conversation with him, and he invites them into a conversation with, to fix the relationship, to make things right. And notice in verse 26, this servant falls on his knees and he begs, have mercy on me, have patience with me. I acknowledge that I owe you. I acknowledge that I'm in debt. Have mercy and have patience. If you were with us last week, we were in Luke chapter 18. And so you already know that this is the right response to a merciful king. Remember Jesus talked about the the Pharisee and the tax collector? And remember the the tax collector came before God and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went home justified. He He went home made right with God. So this is the right response when we owe a debt. You are right. I owe the debt. I've been wrong. Would you have mercy on me? And this king... Who obviously represents God has a disposition towards mercy. This king is, is very merciful. He extends mercy, even though this is a, a huge debt. What Jesus has pictured would be billions of dollars, something that this guy would never be able to come up with the funds and repay. Billions of dollars. But this king has mercy. And he releases this man from the dead. That's what forgiveness does. It releases us from that burden of bitterness and anger. That's what real forgiveness looks like. And the original audience is saying, wow, what a merciful king. That never happens in the real world. This is obviously an imaginary story Jesus is making up. But this story does happen in the real world. Because our king is holy, 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 as we've sung about this morning. And as we've talked about what we owe to our king, what's the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, everything you got, right? All you owe him is 100% of of what you are 100% of the time. That's all you owe him. And we fall far short of giving him what he deserves. And that debt that we have created, that we haven't honored him, that we haven't worshiped him, that we haven't brought him glory, we've done things for our own glory. Even our best works, we've wanted God to get some glory, but we've wanted some glory too. Even our best works have mixed motives, and even the good things we do have dug us further into debt. So we have this debt that we cannot pay, and God sends his son to pay this debt that he did not owe so that we could be made right with the king. We sang it this morning, mercy flows through him alone. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now, imagine with me in the parable, what if this person who was called before the king, the person who was confronted, what if he said, no, king, I did not do anything wrong. I have always done what is right. In fact, let me tell you about some stuff you've done wrong. You got a lot of stuff you've done. In fact, I think you might be the real problem here. What would happen if he had responded to the king that way? We would never get to mercy. Mercy comes through humbling ourselves and asking for mercy and, re- and a- acknowledging what the situation really is. The king would have just stayed at that point of, of justice. And they would never get to mercy, and they would never get, watch this now, because this is what we miss out on when we don't forgive. They would never get to that deeper relationship that is possible with the king. Read about Jesus in Luke chapter 7. There's a woman who's crying and wiping his feet with her, with her hair, and the Pharisees are looking down her, and Jesus says, Don't you understand? Those who are forgiven much love much. And the forgiveness and mercy that is available allow us to to have such gratitude and love for the glory of the Father who is merciful. And as we experience that mercy, we see His glory. even. But when we don't, what did we sing this morning? Merciful and mighty. That He's righteous, merciful, and just. Let me just stop right there and ask you. What's your reaction when someone wrongs you? Like the king, do you initiate a conversation to make it right? Do you invite the person into a deeper and better relationship? Or are you a person who's just looking for an opportunity to tell somebody all the stuff that they do wrong? Or the more likely scenario, living in the southeastern United States at this time, we don't go to the person and tell them what they did wrong, but we just hold them at arm's length. We suspect that they are up to the worst in every situation. And we don't act to preserve the relationship. Our response is not one of mercy. We're holding it over them, but even not telling them what they did. There's just a change in the relationship. Is that how you respond? What's your reaction when someone confronts you about something you've done? How do you respond when somebody comes and initiates and invites you to a better place in your relationship with them? Maybe they come in an imperfect but an earnest way. Do you respond with, I've done nothing wrong? Let me tell you all the stuff you've done wrong. Actually, you're the problem here. You know, many of us respond that way, right? Uh, You know, it's kind of the the theory of, you know, the best defense. If I'm going to defend myself from what you're saying, the best defense is a good offense, right? I'm just going to go after you, and you're going to spend so much time defending, you'll forget about what I did wrong, because you're going to have to defend yourself. Or... I'm going to make it so uncomfortable for you to confront me about something that you did wrong, you will never confront me again, right? Those are defense mechanisms that we use. But think about that with me. If you really thought that that person had done all this wrong stuff over all this time, if you really care about the relationship, then why hadn't you been to them before now? Why did you wait until they said something about you before you started talking about all that they did wrong? Can you at least take some time to reflect on what you've done? You see, when we respond this way, we never get to that mercy or to that better relationship that is possible. So how should we do conflict within the church? Scene one here shows us that we should initiate conversations We should invite others to work on our relationship, that we should be quick to admit we need mercy, and we should be quick to extend mercy to other people as the king is here. Very much reflective of what we saw in in Matthew uh, 18, verses 15 and 16, right? So so let's read these together, and let's look at scene 2. Scene 2, beginning in verse 28. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to ask some compare and contrast questions after this, all right? So be thinking about that as we look at verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, that's a lot less, and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Ooh, okay, Well, what are the things that are the same here? and What things are different? Let's do a little compare and contrast. What's the same? Both owed a debt, right? But they didn't have the money to pay. Both of them said, they responded with, have mercy on me, have patience with me. They both respond the same way. And that's where the similarities end, right? Because <laughs> there are a lot of differences the first man had owed 10,000 talents, billions of dollars. The second one owed 100 denarii. That's probably a few thousand dollars. It's something that may take you several months to work off, but less than a year. It's something that was certainly possible to repay. So the debts are different. And the way it was handled was different. Was it the king initiated a conversation, invited him to talk about how we can make this Right. This guy goes out and he seizes somebody and grabs them by the neck and chokes them. The way they respond is very different. And of course, the outcome is totally different as well, right? When mercy was requested, the king granted mercy. And when mercy was requested the second time, the man was denied mercy. He used the debt he was owed to justify abusing his neighbor. He feels justified in violating the command that we would love one another because of the debt that was owed. Maybe you've experienced that. Or or you have sincerely apologized to someone and they say the words, I forgive you, but they don't really release you. They never let you forget that you wronged them that one time, and it seems that you always owe them. Maybe one of your worst moments took place before your family years ago, and it's been years since it happened, but you know it's going to come up at Thanksgiving. You know it's going to come up at Christmas. You know it's going to come up at the next family reunion or the next wedding or the next funeral or the next time the family is all together. Jesus is so real about that. He's so honest about that. He has this abuse of mercy and forgiveness in the story because he knows it is a reality in the lives that we live. So in that kind of world, how do we handle conflict? Well, scene two shows us that we need to take a step back, right? When we're in conflict, it seems like this is everything that there is. And we're so focused on what we're owed. And Jesus seems to be teaching to take a step back and to remember the bigger picture. To remember how the king has forgiven us. To remember how great our debt was and how much bigger it was than what this person owes us. That we take a step back to see and remember that our king did not assert his rights, which would have been just, but he was willing to forego the rights to preserve our relationship. And when we remember how much we've been forgiven, how we've been given mercy, then we step back into the situation and it is easier to forgive and to extend mercy to other people, people who owe a debt and people who are asking for mercy. But notice this assumes we're dealing with someone who says, you are right, I am wrong. What if they don't say that? Well, we still need to have this disposition of mercy toward them, and if we forgive, and we have to forgive them in our hearts. That's what Jesus says there in verse 35. We forgive them from our heart, but we're not unwise. We say, forgive them, Lord, they don't know what they're doing, but we don't entrust our hearts to them. That's the way Jesus handled those who crucified him. He doesn't give his heart to Pilate. He doesn't give his heart to these people who are out to get him, although he forgives and asks God to do so as well. You see, the assumption here is that we've gotten past justice to the heart of mercy because someone has said, you are right and I am wrong. Have mercy on me. Will you forgive me? Without that, We're still at that point of justice, right? We're still at that point of setting some kind of a boundary. We've not gotten to mercy. We're just waiting on the person to see their sin and to admit that they're wrong. These are difficult things, aren't they? Let's just name it. Handling conflict in the church is hard, And it's often easier just to avoid dealing with it all together. But when we've really been sinned against, we've been truly wronged, we don't always respond the right way. How do we go wrong? Look at this man. Sometimes it's easier to see in someone else. That's why Jesus tells these stories. What went wrong with this guy? Either, number one, he forgot the big picture and acted in a way inconsistent with the mercy he had received, he forgot to take a step back and he just reacted. Maybe that's what he did. Or number two, perhaps he was never really sorry in the first place. He just said what he had to say to get out of trouble with the king. Maybe you've had someone say they're sorry to you, but they really don't mean it. Maybe they were sorry they got caught. They're sorry about being confronted. They're sorry that they're in this conversation, but they really don't care about your relationship. Or maybe you've gotten the preemptive sorry. Do you know that one? You begin to tell the person what they doing, and they say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And what I mean by that is just stop talking about it. I just, I'm going to say I'm sorry so that we can get past this moment so that you'll stop talking about it. I'm just saying I'm sorry to get you to shut up. The preemptive sorry. I don't know which this guy did, but I know what it's like to do, number one. I've received mercy from God, but then acted towards someone else like I've never done a thing wrong in my life, that I've never needed mercy, and I demand justice. I've done that so I can understand how it happens, And if we're all honest with ourselves, we know what it's like to do the second thing too, right? To be sorry we got caught, to be willing to say whatever we have to say to get us out of the situation. We just want to get past this moment, but we never really believe that we were wrong. We never really believe that we must change. We've all done that and received mercy and grace from the King so we can extend mercy and grace to one another when this handling conflict does not go well. But you know, some of us get in this situation and we just never forgive anymore because we've seen people misuse it like this guy does. Or we never apologize because we're afraid our apology will always be held over us. I can understand why folks respond in that way. But is that okay? No, it's not. Our king extends mercy and grace knowing that there will be those who abuse his extending mercy. But he does so anyway because that's his character, that's his nature, that's his disposition to give mercy. And that shows his character. And we who are Christ followers, who walk in his ways who want to bring glory to him, also have to display that kind of character that extends mercy and grace, that's willing to admit that we do things wrong, even when people will take advantage of it. That shows the kind of character God is growing in us. And if another person misuses the mercy we extend, or that apology that we sincerely gave, that shows their character as well but that's still an uncomfortable situation. What do we do with that? That's just it. We have to be mistreated. We have to be misunderstood. Yes, that is what we're called to do is what the Lord Jesus endured. We have fellowship with him in those sufferings, but that's not all. These folks who abuse mercy, who misuse apologies, they are accountable to community that's what verse 17 was talking about tell it to the church that's what scene three is about let's look at that and get some clarity scene three beginning in verse 31 when his fellow servants saw what had taken place this is the community seeing what happened right when his fellow servants saw what had taken place they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place then his master summoned him and said to him you wicked servant I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Then Jesus says the point of the parable. He doesn't always explain it to us, but he does in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. From your heart So let's go back to our question. What if someone misuses the mercy we extend, or the apology we so willingly gave? They're accountable to the community who sees what they've done, and we entrust ourselves to God, and the community entrusts itself to the king, right? They cry out to the king, "What is that? What is crying out to the king? It's just prayer, right? The people of God begin to pray, Lord, restrain this person. Lord, limit the damage they can do. Lord, lead them to repentance. Lord, make this situation right. The individual and the community begin to cry out to the king. And how does the king respond here? He summons this man and he says, you wicked servant. To some of us, we say, yeah, that's right. To some of us, we say, that sounds kind of mean that you would do that. But is this mean, or is this Jesus just telling the truth? It is a wicked thing to receive this kind of mercy and then not extend mercy. And perhaps this man was doing it in the name of the king. Perhaps he said, I've got my pardon. I've been forgiven my debt. I got friends in high places, so you better pay what you owe. That would make it even more wicked, wouldn't it? To abuse your brother, to misuse them in the name of the king who extended you mercy, that is wicked. Some of us don't like verse 34, where in anger the king takes action. And some of us will say, well, God's never angry with us, is he? Well, I understand why you would say that. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God certainly doesn't condemn those who are His. But there's a long history of the people of God making God angry. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Spirit we talked about in Sunday school. God is a person and has emotions. He's a jealous God. And yes, sometimes he's angry even with his children, especially if we abuse and misuse others of his children. It's like seeing your own kids fight. It's right for God to be angry in the situation. Imagine you're the victim. <laughs> and somebody has seized you, in the name of the king he seized you, and abused you, and not extended you mercy, in the name of a king who is so merciful. And then you see the king rise up, and you hear him name it. What you did was wicked. And then you see the king in anger, a righteous use of anger, not as an arbitrary and capricious temper tantrum, That's not what you see. If you're the victim, what you see is justice. From a king who is willing to extend mercy to those who ask, but he is, as we sang, merciful and mighty. The writer to Hebrews says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, listen to me. Do not not dismiss this. Verse 35, where Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. He's talking to the disciples here, right? He's answering the apostle Peter's question when he says that. Our relationships within the church are not something to be trifled with. They are not insignificant to God the way that we treat one another. In fact, Jesus prays in the garden as he's going to his arrest and death. He prays, oh Lord, might they be one. Oh, that the world would know that you sent me and that all this is legit by the way that they love one another. As you hear this parable, maybe the Lord has put someone on your mind or he's put a situation on your heart. How should you handle it? We can't possibly cover all the scenarios, but generally, scene one shows us we probably need to initiate with that person or in that situation. We need to invite them into a conversation to preserve the relationship that we would be quick to admit that we are at fault, that we would be quick to extend mercy to one another. Scene two would teach us to be sure and step back and remember your king so inclined to extend mercy and to remember your own life so in need of mercy that the king so willingly granted and then step back into this relationship or this situation that God has put on your heart and work as far as it depends on you to make it right. I do preach these sermons ahead of time in the mirror. If you've been the guest, uh, in the guest bathroom in our house, you know right where that is, that mirror right there. And as I hear these things, I just think, man, this is really uncomfortable. Preacher, why are you bringing this up? To which I replied, Jesus, why are you telling a story like this that I gotta preach? But the reason he tells this story is because we need the reminder that we will have conflict. And we need the reminder that our relationship with our God should change the way we do conflict with one another. And if we've acted inconsistently with the mercy that we have received from him, we have to initiate. With the person we've wronged, we've got to invite them into a conversation to make it right. Then scene three, if the mercy is abused, if the apology is misused, we entrust ourselves to God, the community cries out, and God brings justice. Maybe in this life, maybe in the next. But that's how Jesus instructs us to handle conflict. May we handle conflict well in this place. May we do it to the glory of God. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so practical and affects every one of us. I just pray that you would protect us from the evil one who loves to stir up dissension. I pray that you would protect us from our own flesh, which wants what we want. And I pray that you would protect our unity in this place, and that this would be a place that we love one another well and that we are persistent in extending mercy and asking for forgiveness, that we would be persistent in making our relationships right with one another because you have done so much to make our relationship right with you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.